0: Hey, good morning, my name is Matt. I'm the youth director here at Christ Community Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. Um, First graders are dismissed. And if uh, the rest of you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter four. We're gonna be looking at Jonah four, uh, verses one through four this morning. And so while you're making your way there, I'd like to catch us up just again to where we're at at this point in uh, our Jonah series. We're in week seven of eight, so we're nearing the end now. We've seen how God's word has come to Jonah two times. The first time, of course, God's word comes to him and God calls Jonah. And he says, go to Nineveh and cry out against it. And of course, instead of going to Nineveh, Jonah goes to Tarshish. He flees this call on his life. He goes down and further down into disobedience, running from God's presence until he finds himself in the belly of a fish. Um, and it is there that God, even though Jonah was good, is dead for three days and three nights. God works on his life. He uh, Jonah repents. He turns back to the Lord, experiences God's compassion, and when he's spat back up on shore, um, some time later, the word of the Lord comes to him again, and this time he answers the call. He goes to Nineveh exactly as God commanded him. He preaches this one-line sermon. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And to his surprise, they believe God, and they turn and they repent from their violence. And at this point, this morning, we're going to see Jonah's response to how God has responded to the Ninevites' repentance. And as we look at this text, the key truth we're going to see this morning is that God patiently shows us compassion while growing us as disciples in his image. We're going to see all about God's patience for us this morning. And so I'm going to read the text, uh, then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will get to respond, thanks be to God. So if you would, hear now God's word for us this morning. Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. So this is uh, quite the cliffhanger text. Um, but as, as we go into it this morning again, I think we're going to see a lot about how God works in our lives as his people. And as we begin this morning, um, there's a really great question that's asked in the foreword to Rankin-Wilburn's um, fantastic book uh, called Union with Christ. Maybe you've read that book. We've used it in a couple of the, the book studies in our church. But this is one of those questions that when you ask it, it it kind of just gets up in your face, it sticks to your ribs and you realize just how applicable it is over and over in your life. And so to modify that question just a little bit, the question is this, has God ever shown you that you don't know something as well as you thought you did? Has God ever shown you that you don't know something as well as you thought you did? Like there are times in our lives where this can happen to us and it's kind of funny Like one of my favorite stories of all time being in the chicken quick service industry is we had this guy come through our drive-thru and in the morning he looked at the person on the window and was like, you guys say you don't serve beef, but you have sausage biscuits. And the guy in the window kind of paused, looked at me and then looked back at the guy and said, "Uh, sir, sausage is made of pork. And the guy just chuckled and then drove away. Um, (laughs) I never saw him again. And so it's like, yeah, he he thought he knew what was in sausage, and wasn't beyond sausage or anything. It certainly wasn't beef; it was pork. And so he was wrong. Um, so we can laugh, you know. We we all probably have a lot of really funny stories like that. We could just spend all morning sharing those. But God does this to us in a lot more real and serious ways all of the time. And the question is, are we paying attention to what He's teaching us? Like this can happen when you read the Bible. You go and you read a book in the Bible. Maybe that's been your experience with Jonah in this series. And you thought, man, I thought I knew that story. But reading it again, hearing it again, the Spirit illumined my mind, and I saw things I had never seen before in that part of the Word. It can happen to us spiritually. Um, Another book a lot of folks in our church are going through right now is Donald Whitney's Praying the Bible. And that book does a fantastic job at just drawing to surface all these things we think we know about prayer. We think it's got to be a certain amount of time. We think it needs to feel a certain way, and you have to do it a certain way. And Whitney just shows how we bring all these things we think we know about how you're supposed to pray And none of them are actually rooted in the Bible. And he he shows us a a better way to pray that is more biblically grounded. This can also happen to us in our relationships. Like how often do we sometimes assume something about somebody, good or ill, and then something gets said later on or something happens and you realize that you would totally misjudge somebody and you, you, you didn't know them nearly as well as you thought you did. This can even happen to us in our experience and knowledge of the gospel. We think we know what it means to be a sinner in need of grace, and we think we know what it means for Christ to have come and to die for us, and then you find yourself um, just in in some sort of mess on account of your sin, deeper in sin than you ever thought you could have been, thinking that, "Ah, there's no hope for me now, and yet through repentance, through the faithful presence of Christian brothers and sisters, people praying for you, through your use of the means of grace, you come to know God's love for you in a deeper way than you had before, and you realize, "I, I knew the gospel, I thought I did before, but I know it even more now. And so the point is, we all have things we think we know a whole lot about. But then God goes and he does something in our lives through his sovereign purposes, and he shows us how little we actually knew. And he draws us closer to himself. And God goes and he's gonna do this for Jonah, both in this morning's text and then next week as we conclude this book. And so the amazing thing is that Jonah is gonna take what he thinks he knows all about God and he's gonna throw it in God's face. And yet God is going to respond to him with such remarkable patience. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, to God's response to Jonah, let's look at verses 1 through 3 and see Jonah's anger at God's compassionate character. Because the amazing thing, as we're going to see, is Jonah's not just mad about what God does. Jonah's mad at who God is. And that's a key distinction to remember as we look at these verses. So to remember what happened, God has relented from the disaster that he had sent Jonah to call out against the Ninevites. If the Ninevites had not turned from their violence, God would have sent some sort of disaster. We don't know the details of what it may have been, but we certainly know he could have done something to have turned over their entire civilization. And to Jonah's surprise, the Ninevites repent. They, the king himself sits in dust and ashes and wears sackcloth, and they all turn from their violence. And rather than sending the disaster anyway, God relents from it. And Jonah, it says that this action displeases him exceedingly, and he was angry. And if you have um, the ESV, for example, you might have a footnote in there, and they say it's not just that it displeases Jonah exceedingly, like that word's almost too soft, it might make you think of like a food critic who's like, I'm not impressed with the soup of the day, this displeases me. But this, this isn't casual for Jonah, it says that this was evil to Jonah it is morally repugnant to him that God would not send fire from heaven upon the Ninevites. He can't stand it. And so he's angry. And the amazing thing is, look at how the text then describes the way Jonah goes off here, his tirade. He's not just mumbling to himself. He's not just crying out to the wind. He is praying all of this to the Lord. And on the one hand, That's not a bad thing. Like it is good that Jonah wouldn't just try to stuff this down and hide it from the Lord. But if you look at this prayer, it is probably one of the most self-centered prayers in the entire Bible. It's just full of me and I, me and I all over the place. Lord, this is what I said. This is what I knew. This is what you have done to offend me. There's no pivot in this prayer like there is in Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane where Jesus lays his soul bare before the Lord and he is in great distress knowing that the cross stands before him. And yet, though he would wish for a better way, he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. But Jonah does nothing like that. He wants what he wants and he wants it now. And because he knows he can't get what he wants, he says, well, fine. If I can't have what I want, then just take my life, Lord. It is better for me to die than to live seeing you do and live and act like this, Lord. And this actually establishes a connection to Elijah's prayer in 1 Kings 19. If you know anything about Elijah's story, he too was a prophet of the Lord. And he was one of those prophets who lived in a particular time in the history of God's people where God was using the prophets to do a lot of really miraculous, really amazing things. And he had a showdown with the prophets of Baal. He had a battle royale and he bested these guys because they had the two altars and they were saying, all right, which God is real? Whichever one sends fire from heaven to consume this altar, that's the God Israel will follow. And of course, the prophets of Baal, they can't get Baal to do anything. And Elijah's like, well, maybe he's in the bathroom. Like, I don't know where he is. And nothing happens. And it's meant to be funny. And then Elisha douses his altar with water and God sends fire from heaven and consumes it. And so these prophets of Baal are put to shame and put to the sword. And you would think that that would have been the end of it. But then Jezebel the evil queen, the wife of Ahab, comes after Elijah and he runs and he hides in a cave and he thinks, this is it. This is the end of the line for me. He thinks that he's the only one left, that he's seen the end of God's goodness. And so he asks God to take his life. He's like, don't let Jezebel get me. Just take my life, Lord. Let this be the end. But then God goes on and he shows Elijah, no, there's a remnant. You haven't seen the end of my goodness, Elijah. This, isn't, this story isn't gonna end this way. There is there's more than 7,000 people who have not bowed to Baal. You are not alone. And so God doesn't answer Elijah's prayer in that way. Instead, he shows him more of his goodness. And Jonah, though, though he prays a similar thing, he makes a similar request as Elijah, it's for the exact opposite reason. Jonah, it's not that he can't see God's goodness anymore. He's mad because he can see it, and he's seen it go and it impact people he doesn't wanna see get impacted by God's goodness. It's more effective than he wants it to be. He wants to lose his life not because he thinks there's no way for him to accomplish his mission. He wants to lose his life because his mission has succeeded and succeeded far beyond what he ever wanted or imagined. Jonah could not get his head around God showing mercy to anyone outside of Israel. So notice carefully what he says when he makes an excuse for his running away. He's looking back when he ran away at the beginning of Jonah in chapter one. And he says, look, when I was still in my country, this is what I knew about you. And so he was confining God's mission to the borders of Israel. He had confined God's grace to Jonah's own place. He couldn't get his head around God doing something bigger than he would have wanted for himself. And so he reacts with great anger, because he doesn't get what he wants. And we see how right then Sinclair Ferguson is. As he comments on this text, he says, How we react is often a much better thermometer of our heart than how we act. The Christian who loses his taste for what God is doing must look to see who, as well as what, is dulling his palate. And this is, a, this is a really important principle for us to, to see. Our reactions to God's ways reveal so much more about what is within our hearts um, than often we want to admit. This is why Jesus says that you know, what flows out of the heart through our mouths, that reveals what's inside of us. And often that principle comes alive when we are reacting to something that, that reminds us, yeah, you're not in control. And so we have to ask ourselves as we reflect on this text this morning, how do you React when God doesn't do what you want. And then what does that reveal about your heart? Whenever God doesn't do what we want, we're often very very rarely and very slowly do we ever ask and stop and think, Lord, what on earth are you doing to me in this moment for my discipleship? What are you doing in me or what are you doing through me? Yeah, this isn't what I want, but what, what purpose do you have here? What is it that you're teaching me about yourself or about myself or about your mission in this world? The difference between grumbling and complaining like Jonah does here and wrestling with God's purposes in our lives like Job does, if you know anything about his story, is that Jonah thinks he already knows everything he needs to know. He doesn't conceive of any possibility in which he might be wrong, in which he might not have the whole picture or the whole story in front of him already. He assumes he's right and doesn't ever wonder if he's wrong. But Job, if you know his story again, he's certainly not perfect, And he's gonna have to put his hand over his mouth at one point, but he does ask God to show him, Lord, where am I wrong? What am I missing here? He doesn't assume he knows everything. And so clearly Job is a much better role model than Jonah. And maybe if you're like me in your heart right now, you're like, yeah, of course I'm more like Job than Jonah. Like I, you know, Jonah's just a goof. Like he should have known better. He's a prophet, but I don't know about that. I can certainly act a lot like Job when the week goes the way I want it to, when everything's lining up for me, and my plans happen, but when I don't get what I want, I complain a lot like Jonah. Um, I get anxious and angry a lot like Jonah. Um, and then if I stop and pay attention and ask, Lord, what are you up to? Um, or if I stop and listen to my Christian brothers and sisters around me, being like, hey man, like, do you see what's being exposed in your heart right now? I recognize like the Lord is drawing idols out of my heart in those moments, because he's breaking through our illusion of control. And even in that reaction, as ugly as it is, and as bad as it feels to react in such anger, it's in those moments that God is doing a great work in your sanctification. And he's showing you this is what's getting in the way of you rejoicing in my ways. As, as Ferguson puts it, it's then that you can see who or what is dulling your palate, your taste for God's goodness, both in your life and the life of those around you. So this is a really good question to wrestle with on this Lord's Day. Now, looking at the remaining verse in the text, verse 4, we see God's compassion for Jonah. And this is one simple verse. It's with one little question. So we've got to take a moment not just to zip through it, but really park on this and realize how extraordinary God's work in Jonah's life is. Because I don't know about you, but if someone came after me the way God comes after Jonah, I would get hot really quickly. Like I don't like it when people come after my character and my motives and here Jonah is calling the very God of the universe into question, not just what he did but his whole character. And rather than blasting Jonah with the fire from heaven that Jonah wanted to see fall upon Nineveh, God responds to him patiently, gently and lovingly and he asks him a question. He doesn't just beat him down and show him all the ways he's wrong. Instead, he asks him a question because he's gonna draw Jonah out of himself and further up and further into God's love. If you think about it, there's a similarity here to the way God responds to Adam and Eve after the fall. You know, they, they sin, they rebel against God's word, and God comes and they hear the wind coming through the garden, and it was probably a fierce sound of God coming in his presence. But rather than calling them into irreversible judgment right then and there and calling the story of humanity just calling it on that spot, God asked them a question, where are you? Because what he was doing is he was laying the groundwork to draw them back into restored relationship with himself. He did that with Adam and Eve at the fall. He's doing that also here with Jonah. He's laying the groundwork with this question to patiently draw Jonah out of his anger and closer to the Lord. Because Jonah, at this moment, is willing to give up on himself. He's willing to give up on God, and God's not gonna stand for it. I love, there's one commentator, as he's talking about this part in the story, he points out, he's like, God doesn't even address Jonah's request to take his life from him. And why? Well, the commentator says, well, because it's a stupid request. Like Jonah is throwing a pity party and God recognizes that for him to stoop and acknowledge that is to let Jonah set the terms of his conversation. Jonah doesn't know what he needs from God, but God does. And so he's gonna pull Jonah past his own frustration and he's gonna pull him further to himself. And this is amazing because, again, God knows that although Jonah thinks he knows all about God and how God should act, Jonah knows very little. God knows that Jonah is going to need experience, uh, God's compassionate character for himself, time and time and time again in the course of his discipleship. I think this is fascinating to think about this moment here. And you think about where Jonah has been in this story. So remember, Jonah himself is pointing back to chapter one. He's saying, look, this is why I am justified in my sin from before, Lord. Because I knew you would go and do something like this. But don't forget how Jonah acted in the beginning of chapter three. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah again, remember even before that, at the end of chapter two, he repents, he makes vows to the Lord. I don't think he did that in vain. And the text does say he goes to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. So Jonah had a moment of obedience between his original rebellion and now this, this just temper tantrum. And you might think, you might be tempted to like say, well, you know, this just goes to show that everything Jonah has done has been a fraud. He's not had his heart in it at all. But I think it's much more like Jonah is going up and down like we all do in our discipleship. We have moments of rebellion where we run from God and we have really great moments of repentance and we feel restored to him and we have renewed obedience and then something goes wrong and we throw it all away because we are all or nothing. We're all rebellion or we're all in and we're renewed and we feel bought into Christ and his kingdom and then something bad happens and we go all out again. But notice God's not gonna play this ping pong seesaw game of discipleship that Jonah feels like he's trapped in. God says no. I can see around the corners you can't see around Jonah. I'm going to ask the right questions and do the right things to draw you back to myself. And so, yes, Jonah has already experienced God's compassion in the belly of the fish. And yeah, technically, I guess that ought to have been enough for him to have known better in this moment. But the thing is, he's wrestling with a very real tension in the Old Testament. It's hard to notice this at first, but if you look, he quotes... Exodus 34, six through seven. That's been our call to worship in this sermon series. We did that on purpose because this is a key text in the entire Bible. This is God revealing who he is to Moses as he's bringing his people out of slavery and bringing them into relationship with himself. And he reveals his character. And Jonah quotes that here, but notice he doesn't quote all of it. He quotes the half about God's compassion and God's mercy, but he leaves out the part about God's justice. Because Jonah can't get his head around, how can the just God overlook the sins of this violent city? Remember, Nineveh would have been this this den of scum and villainy to the Israelites. It would have been a God-forsaken place to them. They would have been like, there's nothing good that comes out of there, and there's nothing good that should go there from God. And so he's looking at God, showing them mercy, and he's wondering, okay, that's great, you showed them mercy, but how are you still just? You know, I'm just seeing your compassion here. How do I put these things together? And he's probably also afraid that God's mercy to the Ninevites might give Nineveh and Assyria a chance to regain their footing. Remember, they are at a low point in their history. That's probably why they're so primed and ready to hear Jonah's prophetic word to them. But Jonah might be wondering, well, if God doesn't destroy them now, then what are they gonna do to us later? And technically, He's not wrong to be afraid of that because if you know the the story of the northern kingdom, Assyria is going to be the ones who carts them off into exile because although Nineveh had a moment of repentance, the northern kingdom won't. And never mind the fact then that the Ninevites understood Joel 2, 12 through 14 better than Jonah did. That's the part about relenting from disaster. Jonah quotes that as well. The Ninevites experienced that because they asked the question, who knows? If we repent, maybe God will show us mercy. But Jonah... He doesn't want to spend time as these, like think about it, Nineveh is at a raw point. We've talked about they may not have converted to worship the Lord, but they certainly have changed their behavior. So any, any other guy in ministry, you'd think like, oh, he should be going back in there. Like now is the time for him to go and not just say, change your society, but turn and know the Lord, like know the God who has spoken to you. But Jonah doesn't take the opportunity. He's too worried about maybe his reputation too. Because if you know anything about his early career, we well, just get a couple of verses that are dropped. I think it's in Second Kings, that talks about Jonah. And he was a prophet who got to say some really good things to the Northern Kingdom about their borders being expanded, about their, their military might being made great again. Like this was a good time for the Northern Kingdom. And now here he goes, God sent him to Nineveh. He didn't want to go. He goes to these great enemies of Israel and rather than fire falling upon them and he gets to deal with the bad guys, the bad guys get mercy. And so he's probably thinking, if I go back home, what are the folks going to think about me? Like, what's going to happen to my reputation? And so he's missing out on what's unfolding in his own before his own eyes, and he's missing out on understanding the goodness of God's character as well. And so there's a whole pile of things that Jonah gets totally wrong here about God's compassion, about God's mission, about God's own character. And the thing of it is, I think if I were Jonah's friend in this moment, like if somehow I were just next to him as he's going to wander outside of Nineveh and throw this temper tantrum, I think I would have taken the bait. And I probably, I'm afraid, would have tried to answer all of his questions and explain, like, hold on, Jonah. Like, calm down. Let me show you why you're wrong. Like, let me show you why theologically you don't understand what's happening here. Like, you don't need to ask God to take your life. Like, we can explain this. But God's response to Jonah shows that that strategy would have been wrong. Because Jonah didn't need more exposure to theology in order to understand God better. Jonah needed more exposure to God himself in order to understand the theology he already had. He already had God's word. He already had all of this knowledge, but he didn't know it the way he thought he did. He needed to be drawn closer to the Lord himself in order to understand these things. And that's not at all a knock against theology in any stretch of the imagination, but it is to say that we can be a church that is very theologically sound, a very doctrinally true and well-read, and yet not know what we're talking about. And so that's why for Jonah, God slices through all of his grumbling and all of his accusations, and he draws out the problem beneath Jonah's questions by asking his own question. And into this question, God is calling Jonah's assumptions into question. Whereas Jonah saw God's actions towards Nineveh as evil in his eye, God asks Jonah if he does well to be angry. In other words, Jonah, You may think what I've done is evil, but is your anger good? And so in doing this, we're going to see next week, God's going to do a very similar thing. He's going to ask the same question because what Tim Keller says is very true here. He says, most of us are like Jonah. We must have multiple exposures both to our need for God's grace, which usually come through experiences of disappointment and failure. And we also need multiple exposures to the gospel message, to get God's love and Christ's grace down into the motivational principles of our hearts, to the foundational layer of our identities, is a process and often a slow one. So I ask you this morning, how is God being patient with you as you slowly grow in your discipleship? Where's the Lord showing you patience, great patience, as he's showing Jonah? In, In my own life, as I've thought about that question, um, I can see God has been patient with me, ironically, in, in my own impatience. Um, one of the things several commentators point out about this part of the story is that Jonah is missing out on all the joy that's going on. He has brought a message, and he, is, he has delivered a message to Nineveh that then God responds to, and they have great reason to rejoice, and yet there's not an ounce of joy in Jonah's heart. He's too anxious, he's too impatient, he's too busy with his own problems To recognize it. And I remember um, almost five years ago, right before I moved down here, uh, the associate pastor at Crossroads, the church Kate and I grew up in, he looked at me and said, you know, the thing you're going to struggle with probably your whole life is learning to enjoy God's goodness. And I wish I could say that that wasn't true, um, that I figured it out, but I haven't um, at all. Um, and I, I've been thinking a lot about that just as I'm poised at this point in my life where my, my work situation's gonna change, and you know, Lord willing, I'll have a little, little more margin, um, and I can already feel myself thinking, like, what am I gonna do to fill up that time? It's like, I don't need to do that. Like, I need to learn to, to recognize God's goodness and see how he's been patient every Lord's day, week in and week out, and so maybe you're, you're like me in that regard, and as you think about this question this Lord's day, and maybe you're going into winter break, and so it's a great time just to take a little bit of time Just think, how has God been patient with me? Maybe for you, like me, God has been really patient with you in your impatience, in your mask and fog and smokescreen of busyness. And yet God, all the while, has been patiently showing you his goodness, even though you haven't seen it. For others of us, we might stop, and as we ask that question, we might realize how patient God has been with us as we drag our feet in not repenting from our sin. Again, we saw last week how God was so good to the Ninevites as they turned from their violence. But what about us? Are we refusing to turn from some sin and turn to the Lord our God and know his grace and his mercy in our lives? If so, he's been patient to you. You're still alive. You still have that chance to, to not have to know the, the, the wrath of the warning, but instead to know the goodness of the invitation to be restored to God in Christ. And that's the whole point of God's patience, to bring us to reconciliation with him. For others of us, we might ask this question, we might see how patient God has been with us as we wrestle through our doubts or through our fears or with our pains or with our questions. God is so much more patient with us than we are with each other and than we are often with ourselves. He's not just rushing to give Jonah the right answers. He's, He's patiently drawing Jonah to himself. That's a good and a beautiful thing for us to see. But wherever we may find that God has been and is continuing to be patient with us this morning in our discipleship, we will surely find reason to give God thanks. And we will be drawn deeper into deeper appreciation for our union with Christ. As we, as we look back at Jonah's experience, I think it's beautiful to think about. You know, he can't get his head around. How can God be compassionate to the Ninevites and be truly just? And yet that tension, which if you, if you study the whole story of the Old Testament, that is the defining tension in the whole story. It is resolved only in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Paul says in Romans three twenty six, where he says, Jesus is how God is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. The justifier of the ungodly who come home and are made whole in Jesus. And so we can see how Jonah... His wrestling is ultimately resolved in Christ, the one that he is but a, a dim foreshadow of. But that means that for us, this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, as we have been shown things that angels have longed to look into, as we get to see the story of Christ in the word and hear it proclaimed week after week, we have so much more reason than Jonah to wrestle well and to draw near to the Lord and to thank him for his patience. We've hope that God can bring us through these things We're impatient with ourselves. We have all the more reason to wrestle through these things now because we can see the way these things fit together in Christ. And even if we can't see how they fit together in Christ for us personally, we can see that that is a reality that, that is ours to be had by God's grace. Even if we can't see around the corners, we can see from these stories that God can and that he's at work in our lives. And so as we wrap up, we see that Jonah 4, 1 through 4, it teaches us that our reactions to God's actions reveal what's going on in our hearts. Like the way we react when God reminds us, hey, you're not in control. I'm the one who's sovereign, not you. The way we react, that's gonna reveal what's going on inside of us. It cuts through the masks we wear week in and week out. And so often then our reactions reveal that we don't know God and his word as well as we thought we did, which is good news. Um, It's good news then that our knowledge is not what saves us. It's good news. And even so, God patiently shows us compassion as He grows us as disciples in His image. Again, take heart. The things that you come in here weary of, that you're impatient of, you're just tired of carrying, the Lord is not tired of carrying you and those things. And that's good news, is it not? So let us pray. <clears throat> Excuse me. Lord, <clears throat> we, we thank you that you are good. We thank you, Lord, that you are patient. Lord, we thank you that you love us so. Lord, we thank you that, uh, as we see with Jonah, Lord, he just, he bombarded you, Lord, with his anger and his frustration. He thought he knew everything. And Lord, so often that's us. We think we know what's going on in our lives. We think we know what you ought to do. Um, And and yet, Lord, rather than answer us word for word and, and bring us into a type of smackdown that we would surely lose, Lord. Um, we can't go toe to toe with you. you. Your 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 thoughts are higher than our thoughts, Lord. We don't know your ways, but thankfully, Lord, your ways are so patient and so kind, and you are so loving to us. And so, Lord, I pray this Lord's day as we uh, wrap up our worship, as we sing a little bit more. Lord, would would you stir us up in our hearts and remind us, Lord, of how good it is to be known by you, Lord? How good it is that in our discipleship you pursue us patiently, that it is in the ordinary life that we live here that you are at work and you're doing an amazing thing, Lord. You are, you are building us up in your image and you are equipping us, Lord, to know you, to love you, to love others, Lord, as a reflection of your love for us. Lord, would you bless us this Lord's day? Be with us as we reflect on our mm-hmm. lives, Lord. Help us not just to see, Lord, all the things we don't know, but to see then, um, in spite of that, all the ways, Lord, you are good. And so we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whom all things hold together. Amen.